I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. There's a lot to do in this work of challenging the church to do better. Perhaps you feel a burden of the same kind, or the burden of any number of things. It might not be available to you in this season, but if it is, resting and play are a form of kindness towards yourself, and a way of acknowledging that you matter. And you do. You matter a lot. In this episode, I'm speaking with Kara Meredith, author of Color of Life. I mean, there are so many types of justice, right? But whatever the form of justice, once we start to notice, we can't not notice anymore. Or at least I hope that's the case. And it was about finding God in new spaces, finding the, the God, a God to me, who is the God of the marginalized and the oppressed, a God who fights for justice. I first met Kara and her book, The Color of Life, when I took one of her writing workshops. Kara's book chronicles her journey of growing up in a white bubble where everyone looked like her. Then she fell in love with a son of a Black civil rights icon and her colorless view changed forever. Here's my interview with Kara Meredith. How are you? How are you today? You know what? It's it's a day. So Yeah. One of those. I, it's it's just it's just a day. So. <laughs> <laughs> did I did I see on Instagram that you had a birthday? I did. And Saturday was my birthday. So I mean Congratulations. As, yeah, it, I mean like we uh, yeah, it was like a horrible and wonderful. <laughs> but for other reasons that are just a little messy right now. Horrible and wonderful that had nothing to do with your birthday. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm it, so excited it, it, for 5,000 new followers following our podcast from you. Thank you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's on, it's on its way. It's on yeah. its way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. I would love to just hear, I, I, I didn't actually mention how I felt about the book, but I really enjoyed it. And there were times when I was reading it where I usually read at night and I realized that I was like reading for like two hours and that like the time had just gone by and I would I didn't even realize that I had been reading that long. So I really, really enjoyed it. You are an amazing writer. And so yeah, I would just hear Thank love you. to hear what was your experience like writing this story? Yeah, you know, this was a very long experience for me. I initially so the, the short timeline, just to give to give you a short answer, which I I then keep adding on sentences. And so it's not so short, but I had written another book that another spiritual memoir that I was trying to sell. I was trying to find an agent for, I had written, I think it was 77,000 words or something. I had this story that I thought was going to change the world. So I was exhausting my resources, trying to get that sold. This was in end of 2015, 2016. And then in February, 2016, I had an article that I had written that went viral which was essentially about my journey as a white woman into issues of race and marrying my husband and marrying into the Meredith family and learning and starting to parent mixed race kids. So the article went viral. And from that, the first agent I had ever reached out to about that previous book, the one that, by the way, no one will ever see (laughs) that is, that is lives on the back burner of my computer because it's, it was the book that I wrote to show me I could write a book. That's what I truly believe. But she she emailed me within a day and she said, would you please stop trying to sell this other book? 
that is not what people want to read. This is what people want to read. So that was February, 2016. I signed with an agent. So it, it came out in February, 2019. So in a sense, it was at least three years, if not a whole lot longer. (laughs) Yeah. Was it a, yeah, the experience of so the story, the article that went viral, which if you have a link to it, I would love to share it in the show notes, was about your family. So taking your family and it was a lot about your your kids and being a mom and being a mom mixed race kids. And that really struck home for me because mm-hmm. I have a, one of my really good friends is a mom to a mixed race son. And so Mm -hmm. she was just talking about the going into her son's daycare and being like, Mm -hmm. Hey, none of these books Mm -hmm. look like my son. And, and then when they were trying to celebrate Dr. Seuss day, like going in Mm -hmm. and being like, here's an Mm -hmm. article talking about how he's been racist Mm -hmm. and just like really fighting for her son. So I really resonated with that. I wanted to I wanted to read to you the part that the part in your book that made me made me cry. This is in chapter 13, not not noticing. When I sat down to read a couple of books with my boys, though, I couldn't help but notice a common theme. Not a single character looked like my mixed race sons. Mm. Why you stop reading, Mama? Cannon asked me. I think we're done reading this book, buddy. Tears rolled in my eyes. I knew he saw it, but he didn't recognize it in the moment. It being the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, pale-skinned children who sat at the feet of the brown-haired, brown-eyed, pale-skinned Jesus. Just as his ears listened to the rhyming intonation of the God who loved everyone in the toddler storybook Bible, his eyes saw a picture of who was in and who was out, a picture of those welcomed at the feet of the master. We did, of course, finish reading the story, but I tossed the book in the goodwill pile. None of us needed to see that again. Am I overreacting? I asked James later that night. You're not overreacting. You're noticing. I don't think it's any different for children. When every single book we read stars someone who looks more like me than my sons, something else is communicated. This is who rescues the bad guy. This is who dons the superhero cape. This is who wins in the end. When my sons see only a single skin color present in the pages of the book, not only do they not see themselves, but they digest a normalcy of supposed to's of who they are supposed to be and what they are supposed to do. And in a Bible of all things, when a message of whiteness replaces the life and the teaching of a dark skin, first century Jewish rabbi living under Roman occupation in Palestine, I am left with no choice but to wish the heartiest of farewells to this woefully defined image of Jesus. And then you talk about going to the bookstore and perhaps it doesn't come as much of a surprise to me that most of the books featuring children or authors of color are housed in a separate section labeled diverse reading, Mm -hmm. further shouting out who's in and who's out of what's normal and what's abnormal. Mm -hmm. That really, 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 really hit me. How has this process, just your journey through this racial justice thing and learning about your family and uh, James and the kids, how has that changed your faith? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's changed my faith entirely. I mean, this wasn't a huge part of the book. It was referenced a little bit, but in the midst of this, I also went through a transition from the evangelical church to, we call the Episcopal church home now. So there was a, there was a migration from essentially a very white evangelical space 
to, I don't want to, I don't at all want to label the Episcopal church or Protestant side of the Christian faith as more justice oriented, but in starting to notice, because that's really what marriage and, and, and having kids did for me is that it forced me to realize that it's not about me, but it, it forced me also to notice and see the inconsistencies in who held the power. I mean, because that's what privilege is, right? And whether we're talking about justice, racial justice, whether we're talking, I mean, there are so many types of justice, right? But whatever the form of justice, once we start to notice, we can't not notice anymore, or at least I hope that's the case. And so for me, it really just, it, it was one of those that it was, I mean, it rocked my faith in, in the sense that it really, so that the book I talked about that lives on the back burner that no one will ever read, that was, that book was actually, a lot of it was about my faith deconstruction. I feel like faith deconstruction is a very popular word right now, but it was about my migration out of ministry because I was in full-time ministry at the time within an evangelical organization. It was about leaving the only church, meaning the white evangelical church that I'd ever known. And it was about finding God in new spaces. And really for me, that's, I mean, it's sure. Yes, we can argue it's that, that it's the same God, and it is, but finding the, the God, a God to me, who is the God of the marginalized and the oppressed, a God who fights for justice. And that I think was a side of God and or of the church and of church leadership that was not apparent to me because it didn't have to be mm-hmm. not in a, in a white evangelical space. So the migration started because of this justice journey. Absolutely. Yeah. All of it was intertwined. And again, it wasn't a huge part of the book. There are a couple of places that highlight it. But yeah, it was that was a huge part of it. Absolutely. How would you define the white evangelical church? Like, what did you leave? I, I'm so curious as to your leadership or as to your readership right now. <laughs> but do you want to know what my audience is? Do you want to know what my audience is? Please tell me about your audience a little more. The audience. Yeah, it's actually, it's it's growing the deconstruction evangelical portion is growing and I have a feeling will probably be the majority. Yeah. It started out just because the spaces that I was in were the evangelical church. Yeah. It started out majority mm-hmm. that, and yeah. I'm, I'm starting to hit the, hit the pace where I'm starting to lose friends. Yeah. Cause it is, yep. it's about calling that. out. It's about yeah. challenging the church to do better. And, and there are some wonderful churches that do want to do better. So yeah, they'll, they'll hang around. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So question again, what was my experience? How do you define the white, the evangelical church and what was the church that you left? Mm. How would you define Yeah. I mean, again, I don't want to entirely, I don't want to stereotype because I don't think that this is true of all churches. I think that churches are made up of humans and humans are fallible and messy. I do think that the church, not even I think, I do know that the church that I left, the evangelical church in space, there, there's a fear of justice. There's a fear of embracing justice issues. That might be a really um, good thing to do for a once a month or once a year topical series is that we'll talk about justice 
but many of the spaces I was in did not have justice in their DNA because they were not that kind of church. Although people can't see it, I'm putting that kind of church in quotation well, marks, meaning they weren't a justice church. For church. Yeah. For the most part, I have, a, I have a good friend. His name is Roy Garrington and Roy, who is a Latinx man, Venezuelan American. He defines privilege, essentially white privilege and, and really white supremacy as who holds the power, which we've already talked about. But I think it's so easy within white evangelical spaces to, to continue to promote those who are already in our circles. And if the original R, O-U-R, is made up of predominant, predominantly of white males, then we're going to continue to promote those who look like us and act like us and believe like us. So we might bring in a woman preacher. I do a lot of preaching and teaching on the side. This is part of my side hustle. But, you know, we might bring in a woman every once in a while because it's, it's good for diversity's sake to have a woman up on stage. We might bring in a, a person of color every once in a while, especially on Martin Luther King Jr. Day or during... Um, Black History Month or Latinx Month or AAPI Month. We might bring folks in from that particular background during the month of February or May or September. But when it comes to who holds the power, the power is still held predominantly by a certain group of people. And in that way, that's the, that's the, it, it only continues to benefit those who also are white and maybe male and not benefit folks who do not fit that mold. So, I mean, I think that was a big part of it. There also, I mean, certainly for me, a big part of the journey away was inclusion, LGBTQ inclusion and inclusion toward my queer family. And just realizing for me, that was as, as, as relationships in my own life, as people behind the labels who might label themselves LGBTQ <laughs> or be labeled as queer or queer identifying as those relationships increased. And, and really as, uh, as I held attention of exclusion in my own life of, you know, essentially like, well, hate the sinner or hate the sin, but love the sinner and continuing to hold on to that theology and believing Indeed, just like you were reading from that chapter in my book that some were in and some were out. To me, that became an overwhelming discrepancy. And that was not and is not who God is. And that is not who sits at God's table. And, and so it, there wasn't room for that. And I think truly there are a lot of evangelical churches that are beginning to wrestle with that. And there's also a whole lot of churches in particular on, you know, when it comes to inclusion that have put a hard stance down and it's, it's only further dividing the church. I, I mean, it's all of the above and another, another, no, keep it coming, keep things, it coming. So. The last, the last part of your book was you're answering your father-in-law, James Meredith's que question about why you're writing the book. I tell him about yeah. sitting at the feet of mama Ruby one night and of realizing that fighting for justice isn't something we do for others, but it's something we do for ourselves. Then I start marching all over again, begging righteousness to dwell deeply in my soul asking goodness to reign over my heart. Justice is for all of us. Or so I am beginning to believe when, when we say like, we're just, we're marching for justice for like for the marginalized communities. I feel like white people, we default to white saviorism and default into like, we're rescuing you. And so I, that really meant mm -hmm. a lot to me because like, no, this is for, all of us. And when one group of people is suffering and being oppressed and being discriminated against and 
and being killed and being isolated, it's affecting all of us, like all of humanity. Yeah, I don't really have a question in there, but do you want to comment? Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think for white folks, and, and I think that for all, for everyone, we, we all go on journeys. We, we are on our own journeys. We're on our journeys, on journeys of becoming. And whether that's within the spiritual realm, whether that's within the racial justice realm, whether that's within whatever these different parts of our identities, we're all in process of becoming, right? Shout out to Michelle Obama, right? I mean, Woohoo! Go Michelle. What an amazing book. Oh, I loved it. I listened to it on Audible, which is kind of my favorite for long books. But then like just to hear Michelle Obama just singing in my ears, I was like, this is magic. So in particular, though, for white folks on journeys of justice, when and as those of us who identify as white or as Isabel Wilkerson, I'm reading her book Cast right now. And she does not say purposefully does not use the word white, but she uses dominant culture, dominant and subordinate cultures. So she would say that for those of us who are from dominant culture, when and as we are on our journeys of racial justice or a racial journey, it is a common place to get to where in in this continuum, in this journey that we're, it's a journey of aware, maybe, I mean, there are so many different models, but a journey of denial, but of awareness of, of uh, noticing, of activism. I mean, I, I can look up the specifics of, of some of the models I use, but, but also of empathy and of humility in there to change actually happening. It is very common within that to get to that piece and part of the spectrum in which, okay, I'm noticing, but then white saviorism takes over. And so what does it mean to continue to move along the continuum where, again, we're moving then through empathy and through humility, and we're moving to change first within, but then change outside of us. So, so that kind of being the final step that then leading into what King would call the beloved community. But I think, and I hope that as we get there, we move away from that white saviorism that's saying, okay, I, I, I'm not, this isn't about me. I'm doing this for everybody else. But, but going, no, this is for me. This is my justice. I am fighting for me because I value my life just as much as I value every single other person. We are all valuable and I am you and you are me. I mean, that's the, that's the Ubuntu part of things as far as I am in you and you are in me. And so I am fighting for you just as much as I'm fighting for me. I am laying down my life so that you can rise. I am, you know, so it's, so I think then if we can get to that spot, it's not about the other and it's not about othering and it's not about white saviorism, but it's about, it's about the intrinsic value of each and every human being, ourselves included. (laughs) So, but it looks different as white people. You know, so it's, it's not then about me centering myself. It's, it's about me lifting up the voices, but I'm also valuing who I am in, in that. What are some ideas for embodying this idea of racial justice? Not just, yeah, just I'm thinking, yeah, just like the, like, like the example in the book of like reading books mm-hmm. of people who are not like us and reading those stories and kind of absorbing them. That's just Mm -hmm. a thought that I have, but are there any other ideas for embodying this part of humanity? A bajillion, a bajillion. (laughs) I, there was, there was an interview or there was an interview, Austin Channing Brown, author of I'm Still Here, which is a phenomenal book. I I always recommend, I will say, I, I will be honored if your listeners picked up my book, The Color of Life. 
and pick it up and read it alongside a book written by a person of color. So originally when our books were written, Austin and I had the same agent. She's with a different agent now, but about a year before Austin's book came out, because hers came out the year prior to mine, we, the three of us sat in a room together, Austin and my agent and me. And we sat in a, in a room together and Austin said, all right, your book is being written toward, for the white people. And my book is being written toward the black people. And, you know, the hope, and, and here's the beauty is that there's been a whole lot of crossover for both. But the right. primary audience, I mean, Austin says in the first paragraph of her book, this is written for black women. My book is written for a white audience that doesn't think issues of race have anything to do with them. Yes, both of us did our homework and hopefully there is resonance for readers of every race, ethnicity, and culture in our pages. But those are the primary, those are the primary audiences. But here we were a little bit after Austin's book came out, she was on an interview and she, someone asked her a similar question and she responded with the words, just do something. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I just need to do something. And so what is that something? Yes, that something is to read. I think also it's not just about sharing pithy book posts because like, unfortunately reading is not going to save the world. Like I believe in reading, I believe in writing, but like, that's not just going to save the world. Also, when you read, you know, promote the authors that you read. And so it means it, it does matter when we promote authors of color, just as it matters, like whether if you're on social media that you promote, if you have the financial means that you're buying books from authors of color. So that so the learning goes with the, those tangible actions. I'm not sure when the episode is running, but in for us right now in, in our time last week was there was a big blow to the AAPI Asian American Pacific Islander community specifically with the mass shooting in Atlanta but this has followed over a year of hate crimes against that community in particular and so what does it mean to rise up and to stand with our AAPI brothers and sisters with our family there. Again, if we have the financial means, look and find and support an Asian-owned restaurant in your area. If you have friends, it means the who are who are of AAPI heritage, just check in, send a text. It, you know, there, I mean, those are two things. What are organizations that we can support? Again, what be it financially or in other ways, those are a couple things. I think you know, one of the greatest things is that if we see something, we say something, right? We, we return to the elementary school playground and we, we stick up for, for, for those who are being marginalized and oppressed. So I think maybe, I think maybe it just means that we begin to see the human in each other again. And as you and I were talking about before we started recording, I think it's going to be a journey of doing that since we've all been on screens for so long, but what does it mean to start really acting on that. Yeah. Yeah. And not being scared. I mean, like not yeah, being scared people are going to disagree with you. Not being scared. Yeah. And, just, and then you I mean, are going to make mistakes yeah. in it. You, you're, yeah. you and are. you make mistakes and, and you, you, yeah. you apologize if you do. Mm-hmm. And like, and the, and the thing, I mean, I, part of me is torn because especially with social media, there's been such, it's just, it's just enlarged our divisions over the last year it's enlarged who we agree with and who we disagree with. And I think one of the things as we move into this new season where the world is opening up again, I think we're going to have to learn how to disagree. Um, But disagreeing means that we come back to the table and we keep returning to the table, even if we have to work through it a little bit. And so for some of us, we are really scared to say, to say things that we don't know how our aunt Helda 
in Arkansas is going to receive. Mm-hmm. Like we, we don't know how she's going to receive it. We don't know if she's going to start like, you know, putting the kibosh on us and, and we're going to be cut out of the inheritance, but it's <laughs> not about aunt Helda. Yes. It's not, it's not about aunt Helda. It's about entire communities that are being silenced and oppressed. I mean, just as your listeners are a lot of whom are, have, have been forced out of the church or have left the church because they've been silenced and oppressed. That's where it's like, this is not about you. <laughs> so what do so you we think about followers? Like who cares? Exactly. What do you think <sighs> about? So Jamar Tisby has a video about that addresses the question. What do you say to someone who says systemic racism does not exist? And then his answer is, not a whole lot. There's plenty of information, plenty of evidence, spend your energy on the people who do want to listen and on actually, you know, caring for the people that are being affected. And I, and so that has stopped me from many conversations that watching that video, like when people say that or imply that I just stop. But then I realize these are good friends of mine and they're not hearing it from anyone else. And so I'm kind of torn, <laughs> you know, like kind of sitting in that, like, do I engage? Do I not engage? So what, how would you respond to that? Yeah, no, uh, Jamar is a friend of mine. Our book, our first, well, my first book, his first book came out at the same time, a month apart. Also funny back anecdote, and then I'll answer your um, question, but our books came out in a month before his release. Our publisher, who is the same publisher, realized that our titles were one word apart. <laughs> oh, we were like color of compromise. Come on. Color His of first, life. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, exactly. We were like, hello, how did y'all not figure that out? But we were able to do an event together almost two one years month, ago in Mississippi said, with my father-in-law. Uh-huh. You in said December one month it 2018. <laughs> His book released in January 2019 and mine in February 2019. It was awesome. But when, so, so I, I think Jamar is absolutely changing the world. There, there are a couple things that I were allowed to maybe disagree on, but absolutely. I think his words and his leadership are changing the world in his most recent book, how to fight racism, which is kind of step two of the color of compromise and and very tangible and applicable. He finally, at the end, he just says, you know what? It's a both and it's about relationships and it's about systems. It's about systemic racism and it's about individual racism. And so the way that we combat it is a both and, right? So we look at that and we say, okay, so yeah, there might, folks might not be at a spot that they can engage right now, but I can guarantee you, I have, I mean, there are people that for whom, when I first started speaking publicly about this, absolutely, I got hate mail. I mean, like, and people that I called friends for years and I remember going, wait a minute, I'm sorry, what? And mm-hmm. that's part of the journey. But those same people now, six years later have, are still in my circles, even if like, they're not, we're not sharing life, but they're still coming back to me and they know who they can ask. And so, yeah. yes, there are some relationships that we just don't talk about that. Maybe we have in the past and they know who I am and they know um, that I am passionate about this and that they can come to me and they know that if they're going to choose to follow me online, that they're going to get a healthy dose of this. And I, they also know that if, if they come over for dinner, I'm not, I'm not going to pound it down their throats Mm -hmm. and maybe that's the wrong approach, 
but I'm going to see the human. And I, I think that if I am practicing empathy, then maybe I'm also going to realize that they're, they're not all the way at a space that they can engage. And yeah, I might just direct them to Google or to a really good book. Right. Yeah. yeah. And if, and in a situation like systemic racism, there is so much material, like so much material, so much e- yeah. evidence. And if you do yeah. point them to some, something and they don't engage with it and they don't seek it out, they don't want to. And, and yeah. you're right. It's not worth, worth the energy. You know, one of my, I think I've said throat. this, you're probably the fourth person in the last week, but I've said the phrase, you are not responsible for other people's reactions or emotions. I've probably said that to now four people in the last week. And it's true. We are responsible to love and we are responsible to be kind and we are responsible to care, but we're not responsible for how someone else is going to react when we speak truth. Amen. And just because someone has a negative reaction does not mean that it's not true or that it's not valid. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. How has being a mom impacted this conversation specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for your listeners who are parents and or maybe who just have a small human that they love, because you don't have to be a parent to love a small human. But certainly my boys. I love lots of small yeah. humans. And I was going to say, I imagine that you have a lot of small humans whom you love and who love you in return. But it changed things for me when, when my boys came into this world. And so, yes, I am fully going to mama tiger fight to the end. And also there are things that I am never going to understand because I don't live in their skin, but I can listen and I can learn from them. I can support them when I can support them by educating myself. I can support them by loving them. And, and for us, it has then been a beautiful journey to see how talking and I mean, we, we often joke, but we're like, we talk about race every day. We talk about justice every day, but it's true. Like, this is just part of our world. And so, I mean, we're not, we're not turning on CNN and gorging our eyes out on really intense things, but when real things happen in the world, we are having real conversations about it. And, and I think that's what all of us have to do, no matter who we are, no matter who our children collectively, the aunties and the mothers and the fathers and the uncles and the friends. And, and I mean, whatever your role or title is, that's what we get to be with each other. Kids are not immune. They absolutely know. So they do. What do you hope to see for yeah. the conversation immediately with my or, kids or with the world around just me. in general that, yeah, the racial conversation in general, I just, I want real I want real change. I want for those of us from dominant culture, I do want folks to wake up. I do want real, I, I, I want there to be a laying down of power. I want real change to happen. I want the, the eradication of our current caste system, which again, Isabel Wilkerson's latest book, Caste. I mean, it's, she defines the situation in the US alongside the countries of India and Germany. And, and that is what's going on. And that is real. And so what does it mean? Yes, to, I often say our responsibility is to listen and learn, but we go one step farther. We, we listen, we learn, and we do. And so we engage. And, and I, I think that it's equal parts, whether we identify as people of color or as white, that it, it's, there's a responsibility on all of us. But right now, I think there's especially an onus on folks from dominant culture 
because we have been the ones who have benefited from a system and a society that was built for us. And it was built for us to succeed and thrive. And for those who look like my husband's and my son's not to succeed and thrive. And so what does it mean? Yes, to realize and to notice that and to then actually start doing something about it. What did it look like for you yeah. to lay down? For me, I mean, there's a couple of things. So my, my, prim- my world, so to speak, is in writing and speaking. So that's, yeah, that's what I do. So for instance, when my book came out, probably about six months before I was meeting with the rector of our Episcopal church that we go to now, and he's a black man, black Costa Rican man. And he said, he said, well, Kara, this is great. We were meeting for the first time. We were meeting over Thai food. And he said, well, this is great that you've written a book that you white lady have written a book about race. And I'm like, well, not really. It's about like how I learned that it's not about me. And he goes, okay, well, if you really want to make it not about you, then don't be a white lady who gets up on stage to talk about race. Because if you, when your book releases, get up on stage as the white lady to talk about race, then you've absolutely, you, you've lost the point (laughs) and your audience has lost the point. So what would it look like instead to partner with folks? So when my book came out in the first four months, I had over 40 conversational events. All of them were conversational with friends of color. And we just went, it was mostly in Northern California, but there were some travels to Washington and Oregon and Mississippi as well. And all of them instead was an engagement of partnering with friends, most of whom were authors, some of whom were artists, but it was about having a conversation. Um, Yeah, we kind of talked about my book, but we also talked about their books. We talked about even more so though, the conversations that needed to be talked about from that. So that was a tangible thing for me now. It's uh, the same. I do a lot of, I do a lot of, uh, a lot of my work is around talking to kids about race, but I will not do that by myself. That's something that I, I partner with my friends of color and it's not appropriate for me to get up there in my opinion and just teach by myself. So that's something I continue to do. I do the same with writing opportunities. I think it's really important to promote those whose voices have either been silenced or marginalized or have not been given a chance. So with editors that I work with, it's been very important for me to continue to go to them and just say, Hey, I noticed that the majority, thank you for this opportunity to write. Or I noticed that the majority of folks who write for you are from dominant culture. Could I recommend a couple of friends that I think your readers would really benefit from, from reading? So, I mean, I think it's just continuing to always have that on the forefront, but that's not, I mean, I say that to you and I guess your listeners hear that right now, but that's also not something that I then go out and toot my horn about. So, I mean, feel, I guess, feel free to delete that, but it's, if this is not about me, then it's not about me showcasing that I do that, even though I know sometimes we have to hear tangible ways. No, I think the tangible helps. It was helpful for me to hear that because Mm -hmm. I did have the question of how the BIPOC community responded to your book. Mm -hmm. And so is that, is that it? Is that your response to, to how the BIPOC community responded to your book? Well, I mean, again, this is where, I mean, so both end, the number one audience for my, for my book was not, was not an audience made up of people of color or BIPOC community. The audience, number one audience for my book was a white audience. That being said, in the publishing industry, a lot of times you'll go down and you'll kind of say, okay, who were the main audiences? And you might have like five audiences. 
So I knew going into it, though, that I would have a lot of folks who were raising mixed race kids who were in interracial marriages, who were um, interested in learning more about my father-in-law, many of whom would identify as uh, people of color. And so for me, it was imperative in the um, writing and editing process that I have that I had feedback from from different readers of color. So we were very intentional throughout the process of, of having folks read and give feedback. As soon as I finally finished the first draft, we hired a couple of readers to go through, both of whom identified as black and and just and, and it was one of those, you know, I said, hey, I know you're not the first audience and I do hope that you feel honored when you read this. And so that, that's the only thing I can hope. I, you know, I, I, at first when my book came out, I remember telling some of my friends of color, it's okay if you need to throw it across the room. And one of my friends who's mixed, she's black and white. She finally said, would you just stop saying that? Give yourself some credit. Aww. Like she, she said, you don't need, you don't need to, you don't need to throw yourself under the bus. Like, no, you didn't get it right away. And no, none of us get it right away, but just just know that your words were not a mistake mm-hmm. and they serve a purpose, even if I'm not your number one reader. So, so that's what I, I, w- I would say is that it's an honor when folks read my book. It's an honor when, in particular, when people of color read my book and resonate with it. And, and I, I don't ever, I mean, I, I hope that I'm always noticing who is and isn't sitting at the table and that includes my readers. So. Thank you. Do you have any final thoughts to add? I don't think so. Yeah. I, it's just, it's fun being with you. We've, we've been able to do a couple of writing workshops together and I know, so I just, I'm a big fan of you and I'm just delighted to be able to share this space with you today. Thank you for being willing to share the space. I was very excited to get to talk to you again. I love the, I love the justice writing workshop in January. It was awesome. It was really great. I loved it too, especially the, like the three consecutive weeks. That was yeah. just really yeah. special. to be together every week. Yeah. I know. I was like, afterwards, I was well, like, oh man, I'm happy to I really send- want to hang out with everyone. I know. Again. I know. <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, thanks. Okay. We're on time. So I appreciate it so much. Good to see Absolutely. your face. Good to see you. Because <laughs> it was lovely. Awesome. Lovely, lovely. Okay. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Okay. All right, bye. I'll see you soon. Okay. Bye, my dear. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time. Hey.